0: The last time uh, we looked at the Apostle Peter's first letter, we've been going through it for quite a while, um, we looked at this uh, section that suggested that every believer, every Christian, every member of a church has been promised divine gifts. Uh, and these gifts uh, generally, would Peter would divide into two categories. He'd say uh, that there are uh, acts... Um, which uh, sort of bless other people and then there is language and, and, and so he would talk about prophecy and, and tongues and probably sort of preaching and evangelism uh, might fall into those categories as well but, but everyone uh, you don't get to exclude yourself because you've had poor schooling or that you've had a rubbish upbringing or uh, that you have a health concern. Uh, Peter would say you know what every single member of the church can expect to enjoy a gift and expect to serve others with it and we learned last time that we're supposed to seek them that it's not something that we should be ignorant about or blasé about it's something that we should look out for and seek because God blesses other people through our gifts it's not um a case that we're supposed to look search for self-promotion but it's a case if we come together and we help each other with the gifts that God has given us um, and we have to faithfully practice them you know we we can't just uh, uh be negligent or, or disrespectful about these things. It's something that, that we have to hone and practice. And I really enjoyed, we had this reading uh, from John Wesley that he was talking about him preaching and practicing this gift that he feels God has given him and then suddenly the spirit of God falling and, and really taking the people that are listening and just causing them to be deeply um, affected by the words. And there was this uh, uh, great emphasis that, you know what, the Holy Spirit will take what we have to give and they'll use it and we need to seek and focus in on that power. Now it would be really easy to move on from this section because there are some great bits uh, in store for us and indeed I've got the next sermon written but I wanted to spend one more uh, morning on this passage because I think God has something to say that you might find a little surprising from this bit of text. Um, so, this morning I'm going to read from a different translation. Uh, there are, uh, so the, the scriptures were written in Greek and Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, um, and uh, there are different translations. The most famous English one is probably the King James, but there are other ones uh, which. Uh, some of them focus more on accuracy of word-to-word translations and some of them focus more on the, the gist of the text. So rather than uh, doing word-for-word, word, they want to give you the flavour of what it is. And, and possibly my favourite translation of the Bible, though you can't admit it to any theologian because they'll have a, a, a fit, um, but uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message is uh, just a glorious translation. And to be honest, I was reading some of his words um, in preparation for this and I think this sermon could probably just be a whole lot better if I just read out for the next hour his writing and that you'd probably be uh, more blessed than hearing my own words but um, we're going to mix up uh, the two. So um, if you have the message translation and uh, so I use the, C- the app the Dakar Bible app on my phone and that's got a, a message translation on it and there's probably other versions out there with the message translation. Um, I recommend you look at it because it is it is easy reading. If you've ever found Bible reading hard, you read Peterson's translation, you're like, oh, I wish I'd discovered this a long time ago. So it says this, um, and this is what we read last time. Sorry, 1 Peter chapter 4, And uh, we're reading from verse 7. Everything in the world is about to be wrapped up. So take nothing for granted. Stay wide awake in prayer. Most of all, love each other as if your life depended on it. It's a great phrase. Um, Almost every sentence I like sit back in this and think that is a great way of phrasing it. Love makes up for practically anything. Be quick to give a meal to the hungry, a bed to the homeless, cheerfully. Be generous with the different things God gave you, passing them around so all get in on it. If words, let it be words. If help, let it be God's hearty help. That way, God's bright presence will be evident in everything through Jesus. And he'll get all the credit as the one mighty in everything. So, Eugene Peterson's translating this uh, um, letter written in Greek by Peter. Peter. And there's talking about serving other Christians in different ways. You know, love uh, 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 makes up for almost anything, and that we should be serving each other, sort of preparing, uh, sort of food, and 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 uh, putting each other up as things get grim. Uh, and more than just this, um, just like the NIV translation, the message um, takes Peter's use, um, and it's this top. Uh, like, what is it, right word of charisma. So that's what he wrote in Greek. And he used this word charisma, and the NIV says it is God's gift, and, and Eugene Peterson says it's uh, what God gives. And uh, there is this emphasis of, this is something that Peters is saying that you need to take attention for. And we've already looked at something that God gives of, of words and actions that we can expect God to be generous and through us, us to bless other people by these acts of service. And now I want you to remember this and we're going to move into another passage. Um, if you've got a Bible, a message translation, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You may not immediately uh, understand why we're launching into this, uh, But hopefully that will become clear. And I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to read 17 verses, um, which is a little bit. And I kept trying to edit it down. But there's so much good in this, especially for different people's circumstances, that I am going to uh, indulge it. Um, So 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in the message. Now, getting down to the questions you have asked me in your letter. First... Is it a good thing to have sexual relations? Certainly, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband. Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide a balanced and fulfilling sexual life in a world of sexual disorder. That phrase sexual disorder is... a Uh, more prevalent uh, in our time than ever before, it seems. The marriage marriage bed must be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Interesting, isn't it? Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it, and if it's for the purpose of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together. Satan... Has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not understanding commanding periods of abstinence. I'm only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. Sometimes I wish everyone were single like me, a simpler life in many ways. But celibacy is not for everyone any more than marriage. God gives the gift of the single life to some and the gift of married life to others. I do, though, tell the unmarried and the widows that singleness might well be best for them as it has been for me, but if they can't manage their desires and emotions, they should by all means go ahead and get married. The difficulties of marriage are preferable By far, to a sexually tortured life as a single. You can't say the Bible's not explicit and doesn't deal with everyday issues. And if you are married, stay married. This is the master's command, not mine. If a wife should leave her husband, she must either remain single or come back and make things right with him. And her husband has no right to get rid of his wife. And he's talking about Christian marriages there. And then he goes on. For the rest of you who are in mixed marriages, Christian married to non-Christian, we have no explicit command from the master. So this is what you must do. If you are a man with a wife who is not a believer, but who still wants to live with you. I really like this. Hold on to her. If you are a man with a wife who is not a believer, but she still wants to live with you, hold on to her. If you are a woman with a husband who is not a believer, but if he wants to live with you, hold on to him. The unbelieving husband shares to an extent in the holiness of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is touched by the holiness of her husband. Otherwise your children would be left out as it is there, included in the spiritual purposes of God. On the other hand, if your unbelieving spouse walks out, let them go. You don't have to hold on desperately. God has called us to make the best of it as peacefully as you can. I really hope you can hear Paul's pastoral heart in this. You never know, wife. The way you handle uh, the husband walking out might bring your husband not only back to you, but to God. God. And you never know, a husband, the way you handle this might be the way you bring your wife not only back to you, but to God. And don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Some wonderful words there. Don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you live and obey and love and believe right there god not your marital status defines your life there is so much going on in that passage but I have a particular agenda when we look at this this morning. Paul in this passage uses the very same word that Peter uses in his passage. He says this word charisma. He says the celibate have a charisma and the married have a charisma. It seems that when we think of Peter's gifts that he was talking about, we can extend this idea of gifts to look at singleness and being coupled up. That looking at that thing about uh, enjoying God's gifts, uh, celibacy and married life fall into those categories. It is the same thing. Can you... Oh, is it control L or... Um, no, it's not control. you just move the next slide? I'll leave you to keep doing that and I'll carry on. So in Corinth, we have, uh, as we would expect, both excellent. There we go. We have... Christians, and we have celibate Christians, and we have married Christians. And that is still true today in churches around the world. Um, Some of the Christians are married to other Christians, while others, uh, because life is complicated, got married and then discovered Christ. And it's a little bit awkward And they want to know what to do. and Because suddenly they love Jesus and they're married to a pagan. And they're worried, what does that mean? And uh, Paul later explains that uh, believers, when they love Jesus, they don't marry unbelievers. So we are talking about people that have only uh, um, become a Christian afterwards. And that... It it goes without saying that believers marry within the faith um, if they are single and then move to the status of marriage. Um, And these different people, these celibate people, these people in Christian marriages and these people in mixed marriages... They love God, and they want to know what to do. And the Corinthians get a whole lot wrong, okay? They are in a mess in almost every imaginable way. But I at least appreciate them saying, you know what, we love God, we want his will in our life, and we want that to be found in every aspect of our life. That uh, we want to be spiritually healthy, holy, in every aspect. Um, Too many people want to be holy but would exclude God from their finances or from how they behave at work to what they do in their free time or in their language or in their relationships. You know, we want God to be Lord but not in this area. And the Corinthians are at least giving Paul the chance to say what God wants in uh, uh, their relationships. Now, before dealing with this celibacy and married life, I want to go slightly at a tangent, Um, because on reading what Paul says, it seems that there was a prevailing thought in the church in Corinth that sex involved the physical body, and that meant it was the antithesis of spirituality, that uh, people were kind of made of spirit and body and that the body kind of slowed down and acted as a parachute on spirituality. And uh, it's amazing how many times the Bible clearly teaches something, but then the local church has a little huddle and thinks, you know what, we're going to say something different. We're going to subtly adopt something that's actually anti biblical um, and it leads to all sorts of confusion and damage all the Christians are like we're behaving in this way that we all agree on why are things going wrong and the things are going wrong is because the thing that's been adopted is actually not in the Bible at all and so it seems that the Corinthians were like yeah you're this physical body it's not spiritual you know it's going to be left behind it's going to be dissolved and um, anything involving it can't be good. Anything can't be holy. And so the Corinthians are asking Paul, what do we do about this? What do we do about the people that think that sex is bad? And so Paul starts to tackle the theological idea that sex contaminates the spiritual person and shouldn't be engaged with, with the idea that perhaps the people that are celibate are more spiritual. And Paul just comes down and just goes, don't worry, sex can be good. It is okay to like sex. It is a God-given healthy appetite, just like hunger and thirst. It is not there just to uh, deliberately trip you up or cause you pain and what paul does actually he kind of revolutionizes a lot of these people that used to be pagans they kind of have this division of uh you know what uh with my spirit i'm in tune with god but this body just gets me down and gets in the way and trips me up and all i need to do to be spiritual is to be free of its constraints and paul says no you are both spirit and body And he sort of revolutionises how they think of it. And I wonder if you can imagine suddenly all these Corinthians going, this body that can be enjoyable isn't actually an impediment to my life. It isn't slowing me down. It isn't an inconvenience. It isn't somehow Satan's tool and uh, my spirit needs to be free of it. Paul wanted to reassure them that sex, like food and drink can be part of God's plan for us, just like every other universal human experience and appetite. Now I'm going to read a little bit more. Um, And again, I just love uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, translation. So I'm going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just listen uh, uh, to this, if you haven't got it, um, in a Bible somewhere. There is more to sex than merely skin on skin. I remember trying to talk to a load of uh, secondary school pupils in St Wilfrid's and Holy Trinity about this, and I failed to communicate. And I should have just come back to this, because he just says it so well. There is more to sex than merely skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact As written in Scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become become spiritually one with the Master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy. I think in there you have the entire summary of the church's teaching on sex people want to rephrase it in lots of other ways that somehow uh, the church is impoverishing in this that it is retrogressive on this we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy leaving us more lonely than ever that kind of sex can never become one There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from the others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies, these bodies that were made for God-given and God-modelled love, for becoming one with another. Or didn't you realise that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please squandering what God paid such a high price for. The physical part of you is not some sort of piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. I don't think you will find this sacred and nuanced view of sex anywhere else. I'm not sure I've ever heard anything quite so profound as what Paul is saying here. Sex is more than a physical act, and it is part of something that is God-ordained. And it teaches us something about spiritual matters. Paul says, our bodies are not our masters and we don't do everything they demand. Uh, we don't eat and drink uh, regardless of what our body says and we don't have sex in the same way. We, our bodies are not our masters and so we don't do everything they demand. But our bodies are not separate from us. The bodies that we are in today are part and parcel of God's creation for us. Now, they may be a bit rusty, they may not be working quite as you would like, but God nevertheless made you body and spirit, and this was deliberate. These physical shells on the outside are as much part of our identity as our inside. And... Paul goes on, and he uses this incredibly powerful phrase. He says, the believer's body is God's temple. It is God's temple, a place of worship. Collectively, we are God's temple, but in this particular case... Paul is talking about individuals, and he's saying, you individually, you are God's temple. You are a place of worship. You are a place of sacredness. You are a place of holiness. What you do with your body matters. It needs to be tended to. It needs to be cared for and thoughtfully used. It matters what you do with your body. You are not a spiritual being that's kind of inhabiting this vehicle of a body and then hopefully uh, very soon you'll escape it and become pure spirit. That thinking does not exist in Christianity. We were made to be body and spirit together. And that promise is actually for eternity because Jesus rose from the dead so that we would spiritually and physically rise. So you are body and spirit and both require your attention. With all this in mind, our God of peace and order made the marriage bed the best place to enjoy sex and explore vulnerability, passion, generosity, and intimacy. It is a God-given thing that should be carefully nurtured and looked out for. It is not something to avoid, and it's not something to treat casually or selfishly. You don't stand up for your rights in marriage. What a great phrase. I might keep that one. Now, we live in fascinating times. Um, And all sorts of different questions are coming at our society. And they're not equipped to handle it because they don't have uh, any advice on where to go. They're kind of making it up as they go along this. But I'm not sure there is a better call in all of our scripture for us to move away from our society's confusion over sexuality, gender expression and gender identity than this passage where it says, God made you body and spirit. What you have is what God's given you and you need to honour what God has given you. Our society would blur the lines and uh, change things and we have in this passage something that says... God has given you what you are. You need to honour that and not wish you were somewhere else. Instead, and we've got to be careful, okay? So people are confused, they are distraught, uh, there are other things going on. Um, And instead of our embracing our culture's ignorance, which some churches, to their own confusion, are doing so, we don't join their confusion... And we don't shout it down. This is a delicate, sensitive, intimate, personal issue. We don't, do, we don't join their confusion and we don't shout it down. We help people who are lost, who are blind, who are ignorant, to honour and listen to their spirits and their bodies within godly boundaries. They don't find that teaching anywhere else. And we get to introduce them to it. And they will find a truth and help there that does not exist in secular teaching. And as far as I can see, any other teaching uh, uh, from other religions either. Now, for some, the promptings of companionship, attraction and sexual desire we all know that this often begins at teenage years, Um, it will lead them, God willing, maybe into the charisma of marriage. That is the end goal. That is the uh, pathway that these things are to be channeled through. There are no other end goals for this. You feel a sense of need to be with someone special. You feel a sense of attraction, sense of companionship, a sense of satisfaction with them. And God goes, yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm leading you into the charisma of marriage. And that, like every other gift, like speaking up the front, like prophecy, like um, speaking in tongues, like hospitality, it needs work. The gift of marriage just doesn't land on your lap and that's all there is. It is when someone is gifted in marriage, they enter it with a knowledge of God's providence and a desire to serve. You get married not to satisfy yourself, but to enter into a relationship of service and mutuality. Now, For others, things are different. There are opportunities, there is a degree of sobriety, and there is a degree of focus that can lead others to this gift of celibacy. It is not a punishment, it is not a failure, it is not something that somehow oh, you know what, Um, it's a shame that uh, God hasn't given you the gift of marriage. Celibacy and singleness is no less of a gift than marriage. Both Peter and Paul, these apostles, experienced in the things of God, call out to every single person in this room, whether you are an awkward teenager or whether uh, you are a falling-to-bits old person. What is your gift in this respect? You discern it, you enjoy it, and you serve others with it. Do not take for granted one or the other do not take if you are a sort of grumpy solitary person that God has given you uh, the gift of singleness and do not take it for granted if you are a uh, uh, handsome uh, or beautiful uh, person that everyone adores that marriage is coming your way either you cannot take either for granted you have to discern God's gift for you just like every other gift does God want you to be married or single, because he has one of those gifts for you. I don't think the Bible says there's a third gift for you to enjoy, where you sort of dabble in non-celibacy or dabble in marriage. And let me tell you, both states have their trials. It is not easy being single. And I was single for the first 20-odd years of my life. And it is not easy being married, I've been uh, married um, since my mid-twenties. And neither state is easy and some sort of heavenly state of bliss. Both states take work. And let me tell you, be very careful what advice you give each other. Church is a place where we get very excited sometimes about these things and then start saying stuff that is incredibly unhelpful. Um, I would suggest um, that... It's more a case that we're probably bent on pushing people towards marriage and uh, matchmaking. And um, I love this slide that just says, stop asking me why I'm single. Stop matchmaking. Stop trying to hook people up. Stop identifying people that aren't married with kids and pushing them into it or saying that that is a good thing. You don't know what God's gift is for them. It is up for them to decide. And uh, vice versa, uh, but it's sort of less common uh, where you go, no, you need to say celibate. You're you're going to wreck someone's life. Just just stay on your own. So let's be careful how we say these things and what we say to each other and be aware that both states are God's gift. It's not one is better than the other. Are you okay with that? Excellent. Okay, last slide. So in his writing... In 1 Corinthians, Paul hints, and I don't know whether you heard it, he hints that celibacy, in some ways, is better and easier. And he says this a little bit more clearly later on in 1 Corinthians 7. So let me read this out. I, I told you I love him, love Peterson's words. I'm going to read out a little bit more. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32. I want you to live as free of complications as possible. I wonder how many of you are good at doing that as a spiritual discipline. Live free of complications, do not add to them. Do not make your life more complicated than it need be. When you are unmarried, you're free to concentrate on simply pleasing the Master Jesus. Marriage involves you in all the nuts and bolts of domestic life, And in wanting to please your spouse, leading to so many more demands on your attention. The time and energy that married people spend on caring for and nurturing each other. The unmarried can spend in becoming whole and holy instruments of God. I'm trying to be helpful and to make it as easy as possible for you. Can you hear Paul's pastoral? I just want to make life easy for you. I'm not here to bring loads of rules and regulations and for you to use this proof text against someone else or to justify your own position. Paul's saying, try, I'm trying to make life easy for you. Just save you from grief. I'm not trying to make things harder. All I want for you is to be able to develop a way of life in which you can spend plenty of time together with the master and without a lot of distractions. I wonder how good you are at spending time with the master without a lot of distractions because Paul says that is a really good thing to cultivate. Friends, the person without a spouse doesn't have to think about the other half all the time. The person who is celibate doesn't have to worry whether the other person's having a good day or a bad day, whether they are sick or whether they are well or whether they've upset them or whether they're in their good books. They can just focus on loving Jesus they can make all sorts of commitments that a married person cannot. It took me a long time to realise when someone asked me to do something when I was in my early stages of marriage, for me to realise that the best answer is, can you commit to this? Let me check with my wife. That is not some sort of bow breathe, uh, brow brow-beaten, under-the-thumb attitude. That is the biblical example of mutuality in marriage where you're there to serve where you look out for the other person and you don't go yes I can commit to that and so Paul says uh, it's easier to be celibate and follow Jesus in this um, case and so the single person go yep I can commit to that and the married person can't because they've got to check their calendar and then their partner's calendar and sort of work out if there's anything else that they haven't thought of For 2,000 years, let me be clear, the church has gratefully received the loving service of the chaste. Um, I don't think we'll ever truly know how much the church has been built up on the people that are celibate and love Jesus so much uh, that uh, they've served him continuously and not had a, uh, a partner in marriage. This church has benefited over the years from all sorts of people that have been celibate because they don't have to ask the other half and they don't have to worry about household accounts and and diaries. Um, So we've had gardening and lifts and removals and appliance installation and prayer and conversations and prophecy and even financial loans from the celibate here who don't have this marriage relationship and can focus a little bit more uninhibitedly on their relationship with Jesus and serving the rest of us. If you are celibate, church life presents a rich opportunity for generosity and you know what, we need it. We need celibate people in this congregation who are able to serve God with that sort of focus that married people can't. Because they can just go the extra mile that the rest of us can't. But let me also make clear that uh, marriage is a gift of God and that the church does well with married people too. You are not a second-class citizen if you are married. It is harder work following Jesus like this but it is no less that you have a place here a couple devoted to each other and God won't be at every meeting we have a string of meetings during the week and you know what they can't be at everything and when impromptu things crop up they can't help There are all sorts of moments in our church life for over a decade where an emergency has cropped up and the married people are not the ones you want around you because they can't help because they've got someone else that they're thinking of that they've got to remember about that they are uh, somehow tethered to and one with, that they can't do things at a drop of a hat. But the married people in our congregation they establish homes and families that it should be a joy to encounter. You know, that it's not universally true that church families are a delight to go around, but that is uh, the gift of God that should be a blessing to the rest of us. That uh, people uh, that are married, uh, they uh, are able to be hospitable and, and kind and welcoming um, uh, in a sort of, Team respect, that is very effective. Um, because of my marriage, I have a warm and decorated house. I've got a feeling if I wasn't married, I might well be living in a kind of Four Seasons tent in Buckham Park, sort of living off rabbits, because that just seems a really good idea to me. And then you sort of get married and you realise that what you think is a good idea is actually a stupid idea and uh, that um, things like plastering walls and uh, drawers with cutlery in, these are not superfluous to modern life, but actually part of functioning in it. Um, and, and, and so I have a, I have a home that um, I think everyone um, in the church has been to, uh, that you are welcome in and uh, you can have a nice cup of coffee and sit on our sofas and and hopefully feel welcomed and appreciated. Um, We've even got bedrooms. I mean, I quite like the idea of knocking all through and having one great big games room. But again, I'm married, and so you you take these things on advice. And so we have separate bedrooms and separate mattresses, um, and we've had people in and we've welcomed homeless people in, and we've had a series of people that don't have anywhere to live, and they have slept on uh, our beds at home. And that would not happen if I was celibate, because no-one would want to live in my tent in Buckingham Park. (laughs) Um, So we can make it out less than the other people, but when we do make it out, You should find a family that is nice to encounter. You should find... um, You've got adults and kids that are washed and well-behaved and happy... Um, And know what it is to be community and know what it is to talk to each other and know what it is to make another person feel good about themselves, know how to care for others and brighten the days up. I am really pleased we've got families in this church because even though they can't go to every meeting and can't give us a direct debit of all their wages, um, they still make this congregation uh, better. And they brighten things up. So friends, celibacy and married life are gifts from God. Everyone has been called to one or the other. And we have a duty and responsibility and a privilege to discern our calling. And in that place of celibacy or married life... We serve the wider community. If you are celibate, you get to serve the rest of us. If you are married, in that position of marriage, you get to serve the rest of us. This is part of what it is to discern God's gift and to use it to bless others. I am going to close with uh, this little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, verse 17. Don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. God, not your marital status, defines your life. Heavenly Father, we live in a world that has complicated this beyond wildest imagination we thank you for the order that you have brought through the wisdom of peter and paul to this subject we thank you that you have made us body and spirit and that we don't have to pretend one or other is not part of us lord god i pray that we would live as body and spirit that we would nurture our spirits and nurture our bodies and listen to both. Heavenly Father, I pray uh, for this uh, gift of relationships. God, I pray um, that we would celebrate and appreciate the celibate in our midst and know that they are vital to this operation and uh, not make life difficult for them. And we pray we do the same for those that are married. That church life is somewhere where they get to exhibit their gift of marriage. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your teaching in this difficult area. And God, I pray that uh, we would listen to your words and know your guidance and your pleasure in all of this. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.